I'd appreciate it if you didn't wear a New York Yankees hat while we're recording this podcast. <laughs> you said baseball was boring. You actually like baseball? I do. You know, you know what baseball is, the, is, right? It's the thinking man's game. It's not. Yeah, it is. No. Yeah. You know what is a thinking man's game? What? Volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sport. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody. This is the giant robots smashing into other giant robots podcast. It is October 22nd. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I am here with Kyle Fiedler of ThoughtBot. How's it going, Kyle? It's going pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We just had a nice ThoughtBot lunch together. I'm feeling full and sassy, and I'm ready to talk about responsive design. Awesome. Me too. So, responsive design. Total croc? Is it a myth? Is it a mystery? It's, it's none of those. <laughs> it's none of those. <laughs> none of those. None of the above. What is it really? Tell, uh, tell a developer what responsive design is. Well, responsive design is, well... Defined by Ethan Marcotte is three things. It's a fluid grid system, uh, fluid images, and uh, using media queries. Okay. So can you dive into those a little bit? Uh, fluid grid system is just a percentage-based grid instead of using fixed pixels or M's or any other kind of fixed unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I have a fluid grid, like when, it, when it's a certain size, I have 12 columns for example. Yeah. And those columns are then proportional to like how wide the browser is? Yeah, so if you expand or shrink the browser, you still have 12 columns, but the amount of space they're taking up changes. Gotcha. Okay. That's the fluid part. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fluid images, I'm guessing they just resize as you change the yeah, browser. Yeah, pretty as well. much. So as long as you enter in just image width or max max width for the image of 100%, it'll keep to its container size. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And uh, before having your images uh, defined by the browser was a bad thing, the image width, but now we're deciding it's a good thing. Why was it thought to be bad before? Because it takes some extra processing power. Oh. Um, and is that, did it actually turn out to make a difference in terms of like page load time? I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't dig into that 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 stuff too much. Okay. Um, I, I know it, it does take a little extra processing power, but um, the benefits for me outweigh that that negative. Yeah, probably not not worth worrying about. Yeah. So, how does one implement a responsive design? Uh, well, right now I use uh, Bourbon Neat. Okay. Um, but before it was using within Bourbon, I created a fluid grid. Mixin, um, which takes care of the fluid grid part, which now is in built in with Neat to make it just a little bit easier to implement. So we should define those terms. What is what is Bourbon and what is Neat? Well, Bourbon is our uh, SAS. Is it a library? Yeah. Do we, do we call I it think a we library? Do. I think a library of SAS mixins is its, yeah. its tagline. Um, and that was just developed. I believe you had Phil on a few podcasts ago I did uh, to talk about bourbon, but it basically became uh, a library for us designers because we kept on using the same mixins for every project and we saw it as a need. Um, so it contains, you know, simple things like CSS three tricks. So for box shadow, mm. uh, rounded corners. So a mixin is a way that I can sort of drop in a bunch of CSS rules all at once. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, and and, the, and more. Yeah, you can do a lot more with the mix-in. You can create a base style. And so we're using mix-ins within, within Neat. So I'll, Neat is a grid framework um, based off of Bourbon that uh, me and another designer here created. 
Um, well, who was that? We should give him credit. Rada. Okay. So we kept on seeing a need for you know having a base grid that we can work off of, and it was also something where we kept on running into sites that were using uh, Twitter Bootstrap, mm-hmm. and Twitter Bootstrap puts in a ton of extra unsemantic markup in your HTML. Uh, so you need divs for rows and stuff like that. And it guides you to add classes into your HTML that aren't really semantic, that are defined by the grid. It's also, they have a uh, percentage grid in, in, or in Bootstrap now, but depending on how many levels of nesting you have, it becomes tedious to maintain. Okay. So we wanted to strip away a lot of that. Okay, so neat is a responsive grid it's a fluid it's a fluid grid (laughs) which you can make responsive yes so within sas the i mean we already went over the image part Mm -hmm. you know that's relatively simple and actually rate a built-in uh mix in for media queries so you can easily put in media queries within uh sas and what is a media query media query is within css if your browser the browser size gets to a certain point you can tell it to have new styles. Okay. So, or to use different styles right off the bat. If you show up and your thing is 300 pixels wide. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's just a way of delivering CSS to certain size browsers. Gotcha. Is that a real pain to think about um, how to reflow your design at a bunch of different resolutions? It started out a real pain Uh just because I was so used to using pixels as a fixed grid and it was really easy to think about it like that especially mm. me coming from a print background mm. um, i've always used kind of fixed grid so going from that to this grid that when you resize the browser it could re- look really bad mm-hmm. um so but it but it's really nice um when you take a site and you go to it on your phone and you've redesigned it for the phone mm-hmm. um it looks really nice or a tablet yeah. Um, the oh. first project that I used it on, we did, it was for a class and a bunch of people brought in like large, you know, they had desktops set up. So they had large screens. Some people brought in their own like 13 inch uh, notebooks mm-hmm. and some people had tablets. And so it working on all three was really great for me to see. Interesting. Is this something that we do by default now for clients or is this like an add on later kind of thing? Uh, right now it's by default for all the projects I've been working on. It's, really? it's, does it, does it add much overhead on, like, could you develop a design faster if you didn't have to worry about responsiveness? Well, yeah. Cause I mean, you're essentially doing more design work, right? Yeah. But usually depending on the project, we'll either start with the modal styles or the desktop styles and kind of meet somewhere mm. in the middle. Um, so at the start of the project, it, not necessarily. And I think it, it's based on the project's need, whether we need it to be fully responsive or, you know, if it's just a mobile project, maybe it doesn't even need a desktop version. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really on a project-by-project basis, whether we need to do a full-scale mobile to desktop versions. Gotcha. Okay. So um, there are other grid frameworks out there in the world. What inspired you guys to make yet another one? <laughs> <laughs> so the the biggest one was I kept on you know having that problem with Twitter Bootstrap is I'd get a project from a developer 
and they'd have Twitter bootstrap installed. And the first thing I would do was go in and remove it because as a designer, uh, it's a fixed 960 grid, um, which is kind of, it's a really nice default to have, but I like bigger gutters or usually like I change around the grid a little bit to suit the content or suit the app a little bit better. Mm. Um, so that was my biggest thing is I wanted to make sure that it was easy enough for developers to plug in and then really easy for designers to take over and kind of make it their own. Okay. So Twitter bootstrap wasn't built with as much flexibility in mind then. Yeah. This is meant, meant so that I can use it as a developer pretty in a straightforward manner. And then later you can come along and you're not bound to the choices I made earlier on. Exactly. Gotcha. So you, you mentioned earlier that one of your complaints about Twitter bootstrap is that it causes you to add non-semantic stuff to your markup. Can you, what does that mean exactly? So within the grid, uh, they have classes, uh, which I guess essentially if you were using SAS, um, you could use extends, which basically apply, takes that class and applies it to a new selector. But generally the way that developers use bootstrap is by just putting that class inside the HTML. Mm-hmm. Which, so you put a class on a div and that says this is like the first column or something. Yeah, it says this column width will be, you know, two units wide. Uh-huh. Um, and that's not semantic because it's concerned with how the content is going to look as opposed to the content itself? Exactly. So it, it makes it a lot harder to for me to go in and be like, oh, well, now I want this to be, you know, three columns wide. I have to go into the HTML. And I feel like the HTML should be just your content. It Got shouldn't it. be deciding style right okay so it's like separation of concerns yeah okay that makes sense there's, there's a total analog in programming which is like things should do one job like all the all the business logic should live in one place all the view logic should live in another place we want to have separate concerns like so you know you you, you know where to go to change things and yeah so my mindset is the same exact way for yeah. html and, and our SaaS. so i want the html just to be content and to be as bare bones as possible and really any class names or IDs that I put in should be describing the content that's within those divs or sections or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So what what kind of design mistakes do you see developers make? If you inherit a project that a developer put in, besides non-semantic markup, are there any like classic mistakes that you think, sort of like design basics that people miss? Um, I think the biggest thing is just space. Mm. Uh, I, I teach the design for developers here, and it's it's one of the things that people have the hardest time to grasp is is just getting the right space around objects and having good white space. Mm. Um, Most people have not enough. You yeah, usually a lot of developers. I don't know why, but they don't like white white space. <laughs> they like it or don't like it in their code, but right. that's different white space. <laughs> right. So so most so. The average developer that wants to improve his design probably wants to look at adding more white space around the elements in there. Uh, yeah, I would say not not generally more, mm-hmm. but the right amount. Okay. Um, <laughs> which is, oh, it's, that's so helpful. So... Thank you, Kyle. You got that, everyone? Yes. Use the right amount of white space. <laughs> the right. Lessons from Kyle Fiedler. <laughs> well, because the, there's there's a, a point at which there's too much, too. Mm-hmm. And... and that goes back to kind of what you're designing. So uh, in general, like the more white space you, you have, the more classy you look. But there becomes a point where there's too much white space and mm. you just kind of look ridiculous. Then you look stupid. <laughs> like you're trying to look classy as opposed <laughs> to being classy. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. 
there's so much it's it's interesting there's a lot of taste that has to go into design right so there's like with with programming there's sort of there is a bit of aesthetic in it where like good code should kind of look nice but you're typically evaluating your work in a slightly more i guess analytical manner or sort of scientific manner like you can say this code is good because x y and z with design there's a bit more of like this design is good because of x y and z but it also has this sort of intangible feel about it like it feels cheap or it feels expensive or it looks classy like there's sort of like that extra level in there i feel like that makes your job a lot harder i feel like a lot of those can be brought down to design principles the Hmm. same way that code can be brought down like you can you and another developer here can write you know a function that does the same thing but it could write it in totally different ways Mm -hmm. i feel like designers can do the same thing and use different principles to kind of like apply the cheapness or the you know how how you want it to look basically that that feel Mm -hmm. Uh, there's there's principles that you can hopefully grasp you know like like what uh like like white space Mm -hmm. um i mean that's that's really a big one uh some of the others that i teach in design for developers are alignment um and how you align things or how you don't align things Mm. can really uh kind of make relationships within your design. Hmm. Um, so in general, you would do want to align things that are related to each other? Exactly. Okay. And and coming out of that alignment will tend to sort of highlight something or distinguish it from the others? Yeah. And so there's another principle is emphasis. And mm. so that'll create emphasis within your design. And so just using some of these small principles uh, really can can give that, that style that you're looking for. Hmm. What does the uh, the Design for Developers course consist of? How does that go? It starts out uh, with design principles and trying to teach very basic elements of design. Mm-hmm. And then we get into grid systems. We get into type and finish off with color. And I add in, at the very end, some little tricks of mine and some you know good practices that, mm. that I've done since you know college. So it's not really much, it's not about CSS so much as like here design ideas. Yeah, it's very much of, you know, going through the process of here's an I here's a thing that I have, um, take it from sketching all the way to the end and apply these, you know, fundamental design principles and tools like a grid mm. to it. And so students work on their own projects during the class, right? They bring right. an idea to work on. Yeah. And that's worked out pretty well. Yeah, so far that's worked out really well. We actually started off with a default project, but I think people are more passionate about the things that they make and mm-hmm. they, they have. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool to see that passion. It's also really cool to see all the individual projects that come in. Right. And it's kind of a nice chance if you're taking the class to have like other designers to like kind of give you feedback on your design as you're doing it. Yeah, that's one of the big components of the class is having critique, not only from me, um, but from the other designers within the class. Hmm. That's cool. So uh, if someone wanted to take the Design for Developers class, one of the upcoming classes? Uh, the next class is in Boston. It's right here in our office, and it'll be December 10th and 11th. Awesome. So what does it mean that the uh, that NEAT uses golden ratios? So golden ratio is... Um, uh, how do I? <laughs> it's it's very much like a traditional design number. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 
if you look at like business cards, most business cards, like the traditional business card size is a golden ratio size. Really? Credit cards are golden ratio size. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first few iPhones, or I, I believe were golden ratio size, huh. but it's believed to be a number of beauty. Uh-huh. And so it's, I, I did a little research on it. So it's, if you have a rectangle, it's that the, uh, and you have a longer side and a short side, if it's, it's, it exhibits the golden ratio if the long side is 1.61 times longer than the short side. Is that right? That is correct. That is phi <laughs> for that number. Um, so, so how does this show up in neat? Uh, it shows up right now in the relationship between the unit size. So right now within uh, neat, there's 12 units, which make up the grid. And you can combine those to make a column. Mm. So three units for a column. Um, so right now, the the relationship between the the co- the units and the gutters is based on a golden ratio. Um, and one of the things in the future that we'd like to put into Neat is also base type styles mm. that will also be based on golden ratio. And you chose, chose that because that ratio tends to be pleasing to the human eye? Yeah, it it's supposed to be very pleasing mm-hmm. and beautiful. And it works for you? Uh, it works for me. Cool. <laughs> Just the right amount of ratio? <laughs> Just the right amount of ratio. Cool. How has the uh, community contribution been to Neat? Has it seen some like pull requests and issues and things like that? No, not yet. Uh, we mm-hmm. have. Well, actually, we've seen a few issues. Uh, we have seen a bunch of people you know, tweet about it and enjoy using it mm-hmm. but uh so far i don't think it's just be- me and rita okay um mostly rita get with it people <laughs> contribute back don't just take 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 uh but everyone has been very very positive so far cool but maybe just it doesn't need improvement <laughs> it's just beautiful uh, as it is we'll still we'll still build upon it <laughs> uh so when you look at your old work what do you dislike about it now oh <laughs> I think a better question is, what do I like? <laughs> when you look at o- old code, do you like, are you like, yes, no, this no, is no, code no. I wrote? No, and I think that'd be a bad sign. Exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's that's a curse of us who build things, mm-hmm. is we're always getting better. So finding a design that I like that I did in the past is <laughs> really hard to do. Yeah. Is there, is there a theme about things you dislike in that old work? Um, there's just a little bit of everything. I mean, there's usually like little things like going in there and being like, why is that color that bright? Or, you know, why did you choose that typeface instead of this one? Or, you know, you went totally down the wrong direction for this user experience. Gotcha. Has, has your design process changed over time? Uh, uh, tremendously <laughs> okay <laughs> uh when i first got here we did mock-ups like full mock-ups of you know this is how the page is going to look up like, like in html photoshop. mock oh photoshop. in photoshop oh yeah uh, and we we kind of show those to the clients and have a conversation with them and at one point i was like this this isn't working mm-hmm. <laughs> um mostly because at that point you know, us as designers, we're being able to do a lot more within the browser. So it, it changed a lot. We started doing wireframes within HTML, whereas before we do them 
in a wireframing tool. Mm -hmm. I used OmniGraffle for a while. Mm. But really, it's just another thing that you end up throwing away, mm. which is nice if you have a you know, if there's a big organization that you're doing this for and you need to pass it around to kind of, you know, have everyone sign off on it. Mm. Um, but here we're doing it mostly for smaller clients. So mm. building a great interaction is more important than having documentation. Mm. Or and, having a beautiful mock-up that looks nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, so more wireframes, more straight to HTML? Yeah, so wireframes, we now do mostly sketching. Mm -hmm. uh, so once we've done those sketches, it's straight to HTML so that you know we can get features inside the app and the right HTML, hopefully. You mm -hmm. guys, as developers, can quickly plug in features mm -hmm. within our wireframes. When you, start, uh, when you start a project and it's like brand new, nothing exists for it, and you're in that sketching phase... Do you have any questions that you like to ask typically? Or like, what's, what's a good guideline for like doing that process well? How do you get good sketches? The best thing that we do is usually we kick off. Like, it's a full day kickoff meeting. And usually they're really intense, especially for the designer who, you know, while we're chatting, the designer is usually doing uh, mock-ups on the whiteboard or writing down user flow. And so a lot of what goes into those sketches will come out of that. And it's a conversation between the designer, the developers on the project, and the client. Mm -hmm. And everyone kind of has equal voice. And So open communication is one of the keys. Ask a lot of questions, really hash it out. Yeah. I mean, those, those kickoff meetings usually start with the client. You know, usually we'll have already seen a pitch from the client. But basically, we'll ask them to repitch what their idea is, what their main goal is, finding out who the users are, um, how they're going to get paid, mm -hmm. um, the client, not the users. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and, and figuring out, you know, the, the tasks that, you know, the user will have to face to do whatever the idea is and figuring out the flow for that. And that usually is the starting point for the app. Mm. What's your favorite part about working as a designer? We actually got asked this question yesterday. Um, my favorite part is, well, at least here. Where did you get asked this? Uh, we were interviewing a d potential designer, gotcha. and he asked what what our favorite part is working here as designers. Gotcha. And and from my standpoint, the best part here is that how much control we have over the product. Mm. And it was his question was actually how like what what's the best thing and worst thing? Mm -hmm. And I told him that was the best and worst. Uh. Uh, it's it's really awesome how much control we have because we can direct the pr product where we think it should go, mm -hmm. uh, usually visually and kind of what the user flow should be and the whole product as itself. But that's incredibly hard to do, and it's a lot of pressure on our shoulders mm -hmm. to kind of make it succeed. Mm -hmm. So it's really good and really bad. Gotcha. What makes uh, a developer easy to work with? Uh being really open. I think all of the developers here are really open to having conversations. Um, they're all very helpful. So whenever I have a question, that there, there, there's usually multiple developers ready to answer my question. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of them, too, have really good product sense. So that helps with doing design, too, is... You know, not just having other designers here critique my work, mm -hmm. but having developers here, too, that have the knowledge to critique my work mm. is really great. Okay. Makes sense.
So if someone wanted to get in touch with you, do you have a Twitter handle or an email address you'd like to share? It's very tricky. Okay. Um, my, my Twitter is Ky- at Kyle Fiedler. Okay. And how do you spell Fiedler? <laughs> F-I-E-D-L-E-R. Okay. And my email is simply kyle at thoughtbot.com. That is tricky. You're right. <laughs> I think that actually uh, wraps things up, but uh, thanks very much for coming by and chatting, Kyle. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Now, often on the podcast, we'll take some time to answer your questions. If you have something you'd like us to tackle on the air, you can email that question to info at thoughtbot.com or tweet to us at, at thoughtbot. By the way, that workshop that Kyle mentioned earlier, the design for developers, again, is happening December 10th and 11th in our Boston office. Uh, go to learn.thoughtbot.com if you'd like more information on that. Uh, finally, we have a couple upcoming events. Uh, Mike Burns is going to be presenting a talk called The Expression Problem, which deals with minimizing churn when adding behavior versus churn when adding data. And that'll be at the Riga Ruby Group in Latvia, uh, October 30th. Uh, I'm giving a talk at RubyConf, November 1st through 3rd in Denver. I hope to see you there. The title is Refactoring from Good to Great with a whole bunch of live coding. Uh, Chad Pytel will be speaking at Software Craftsmanship North America, November 9th through 11th in Chicago, talking about our Apprentice I.O. program and lessons learned. And finally, if you'd like to see the notes and links to the things we've talked about in this episode online, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 17. Today's podcast was recorded by Shauna Quinthal, edited by Edward Lovell, and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.